Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law, where I teach all things business. Today's episode is a part of our entrepreneurship series, and I will be highlighting Dorian Bolden of BU Cafe. Dorian is a fellow Duke alum, and his business, BU Cafe or BU Group, is thriving in Raleigh-Durham area for years and has a recent partnership with the RDU Airport. I'm excited to introduce Dorian to you and to get into a discussion of all things BU. So I will start by letting Dorian introduce himself. Dorian, uh, I gave a brief introduction of you and your company, but I'd love to hear how you introduce yourself, you know, which I'll give is your elevator pitch for BU. Yeah, right. It always depends on speaking with. So again, Carlos, it's great to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so the way I kind of introduce myself, right, is... I am a, a founder and CEO of BU Group, which is the parent company of BU Cafe, BU Blue Coffee, and uh, most recently, most recently, the BU Food Project, which is a community initiative born out of COVID. And uh, I've been in business for over 12 years, turned 13 years this December. And from an entrepreneur that started, you know, filling coffee bags out of his home. Uh, in the beginning before even having a building and trying to figure out how to get investors, I've been able to grow from a, a really a, a mom and pop shop to, you know, becoming a CEO and really understanding the elevation and the difference of the mom and pop mindset to becoming a CEO where we've expanded from, uh, you know, 17 people before COVID to over 70 people now post COVID. And so the mindset, the shift of, how to delegate, elevate, and oversee uh, more parts of our business is, uh, yeah, what we've been a part of and how we've been able to grow. So what did you do before starting your own business? Uh, so before starting BU, when I, uh, when I graduated from Duke University, go Blue Devils, um, I ended up going straight into Wall Street and, and uh, became a financial advisor. It loved the world of finance. You know, I didn't know what I'd do by any means. I was like, hey, I saw a movie, Wall Street. And I was like, man, I would be like uh, Gordon Gekko, man, and just make money and chase money. And uh, when I was in finance, I had experienced a uh, just a, a significant loss. My father passed away unexpectedly. Uh, and at the same time, we were going through a company merger where the company I was with was bought out by uh, Bank of America. And those two events happened. Uh, simultaneously kind of made me realize that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Uh, but at the same time, I think that's where entrepreneurship was born because I saw a lot of people lose their jobs uh, due to the merger and it kind of was, um, yeah, that kind of sparked an interest of, I think, wanting to be my own boss. And so uh, left the uh, banking finance world, <laughs> went to go work at a local coffee shop in the Upper East Side wow. um, because I knew I wanted to, I, I wanted to open up this idea that I had from uh, my experience living in Atlanta before going to Duke uh, called Cafe Intermezzos. And so I ended up working at this uh, Italian coffee shop called C Cafe for yes, 
coffee, uh, C-A-F-F-E. And I learned about coffee the way that people learn about wine. You know, I learned about how it was, uh, how it was born and, and established, um, you know, out of Ethiopia and Africa and how it uh, traveled all across the world and into this beautiful fine cup and, and the purity of it, of how people took great care in the roasting process and the execution of a great espresso shot, a great cappuccino and a great cup of coffee. And because I learned about that, I guess, the excellence of it, the passion of it, it just fueled this, um, this desire to learn more. And I became passionate. So all of a sudden left uh, New York, came to North Carolina, uh, worked at some more coffee shops, Panera Bread, um, and all while working on my business plan to open up BU Cafe. Now, what made you decide to go well, first, the geography of it. Um, you know, what made you decide to go back to the Triangle area after New York? Yeah, so I um, I graduated in 2002, or went, arrived in New York in 2002 after graduation, and I left in 2005. And so uh, I left New York. My, I, my Now my wife, my girlfriend at the time, we met at college. And so, you know, picked the road, let's travel, decided to, to follow my heart and came on down to North Carolina. And the idea was while she was going to go to medical school, uh, I would work on my business plan, uh, maybe get some investors, and then we would open up BU Cafe in Atlanta. But um, yeah, I guess North Carolina had a way of just keeping me here. And that's what made me transition. Well, and I think folks may not realize that, you know, <clears throat> Durham is a very friendly p- place for startup businesses and a very friendly place for entrepreneurs. Um, and so, you know, we have a lot of classmates who've done the same thing, who have, you know, left New York City, thought they might go back to Atlanta, thought they might go somewhere else and ended up starting their businesses in uh, in the Durham area and, and staying. Um, and so I think, mm-hmm. you know, cost of living is less expensive and all those other things kind of make it easier to take the leap there. Yeah, you know, that was the cool part. When I came to, to back to Durham. Um, when I thought about going to Atlanta, you know, Atlanta was still always had that feel of like the black Mecca. And, uh, you know, the thing that the irony was when I, um, thought about the creation of BU cafe, it was from kind of the, again, this, um, coffee shop in Atlanta called Cafe Intermezzos. Um, it's been around for maybe by now, I think over 40 years. So it's like steps of 16th century Europe. So it was very European. But yeah, when you go there late nights, you saw nothing but black and brown folks and our brothers and sisters from all the AUC schools from Clark Atlanta, Spelman, Morehouse, Georgia State. And so to see like this black excellence in this European cafe was just beautiful. It was mesmerizing. And so I used to love going there, taking my face there. And that was that sense of black excellence was what I wanted to create. And so when I came back to Durham, you know, it's different kind of being outside the walls of Duke, you know, a lot of these, you know, PWIs have a way of keeping students enclosed on campus, especially during, you know, the the 90s and uh, early 2000s versus now where I think more people understand the importance of integrating kids into the, the, uh, the, the downtown landscape. So coming into Durham, you know, you think you had Duke University on one side and then you had HBCU, North Carolina Central University on the other side. And so Durham really was this crossroad, uh, crossroads of this great diversity. And so it had a very heavy civic, um, uh, just civic activity. You had so much arts and culture, and it just had this energy 
back then that was man it, it it was yeah it was tantalizing and i think it, it's why durham has blown up so and so yeah I'm, I'm blessed to have been a part of that early phase of so many people wanting to you know uh re-energize you know from black wall street to you know the the you know the foodiest uh foodiest city of the, uh, the south you know Let's talk a little bit about how you got your start, how you were able to launch. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, working in Panera, working in the coffee shops and all that. You know, what was the moment or what were the things that were necessary for you to get that first BU location open? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's by somebody who probably shouldn't be named because he uh, unfortunately he didn't do a yeah, he kind of hit a hit a life of crime lately. But um, there were some words back then that said, decide that you want it more than you're afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it was really having to get over the fear of going down this path. Uh, and then also a level of humility, because you really have to learn the trade of what you're doing. And although I, you know, I've been working since I was 15, from Subway to Chick-fil-A, uh, Six Flags over Georgia. So I've always been in retail. But when you come out of a, you know, a school like Duke, um, and, and, you know, Duke just kind of, it exudes this, oh, you, you know, most cats come out of Duke, man, right? Everybody's either going to medical school, law school, business school, uh, high-profile jobs, and here it is. I, and I go into finance, and then I leave it all, and I'm going to work, you know, 75, 8,000 hours as a cashier at Panera Bread and at a coffee shop as a barista. So there's a level of humility that you have to get over to say, I'm willing to make you know, X amount to learn the business because I see something greater that I want to build. And I really want to <clears throat> understand all parts of the business so that I understand it. And, and, and so I think that was the first part of really learning the business. I, I didn't realize that after the fact that the blessing in disguise was, was coming from finance. And I've always been good at math. You know, everybody thinks they're good at math until you go to do, do kind of turn me off from math. Right. And so uh, when, <laughs> when I, uh, when I went into finance and understanding how to deal with investors, uh, understanding um, just return on investment, profit and loss, the stock market, was able to communicate to investors, to banks, uh, the nature of the risk uh, that I was taking. So, you know, here it is. I recognize being a black male, but with a Duke degree, but with a finance background, I was definitely, I think, given some added value of credibility from banks and investors when I could speak the language with a degree, worked in the business because they saw that I was willing to leave it all behind. They saw that I was willing to be hungry and um, and kind of go after it. Um, so that it gained so much attention and respect from people that it opened some doors and gave me the opportunity. So when you started out, um, you know, you mentioned debt, you know, bankers, you had investors, you know, how many investors did it, did it take to get it off the ground and how much, you know, what was your, like your debt equity mix uh, when you first started? Yeah. So I'll even take a step back. The first part, right. Now I'm thinking back when it was having to write the business plan and I probably spent more time than I needed to, but I think there was this, again, that fear part of not being afraid to just stay stuck in one piece of it and really going the next step and pulling the trigger. But writing the business plan is essential. I, I, I am surprised by the number of entrepreneurs who don't write business plans. The reality is the business plan is where you're supposed to put out all of your fires because you're going to have enough fires when you open up for business. You're going to have a ton, tons of them. 
So the more you can put out um, while you're writing your business plan, the better. For me, I would think it was uh, How to Write a Business Plan by Mike McKenzie. And from all these different books, some were like very lofty and overly optimistic. And then some just scared the hell out of you. Like, oh, you better not ever open up a business. And so I was glad to find one that I thought was right in the middle that was objective. And so even now, I still remember where it's like, okay, what's the opportunity cost? What's the problem statement? Like every business needs to solve a problem. And okay, great. Now, what's the description of this? Like, you got to be able to describe it. Like, what is it? And while you're doing all this, right, you're also setting it up so that you can start doing your elevated pitch and talk to everybody. And so, okay, well, what are your uh, products and services? You know, a lot of people have these ideas of, yeah, I want to solve this problem and this is what my business is going to be. And I'm like, well, great. What's your product and what's your service? How are you going to make money? And so really knowing with that, okay, great. And how are you going to market? Like, and who's your demographic? Who's your target market? Is it 18 to 25? Is it 25 to 35? Is it young? Is it old? Is it predominantly black, predominantly white? Is it low, low class, middle class, upper class? Like really doing the work. And then that's only half the battle. Then you got to get into the finance part of it. Like you got to put together a PL statement, like projections. What do you see yourself doing in the first year, in two years? Because if you're going to be operating at a loss, Yo, that tells you how much money you need to raise. So for me, doing all of that helped me understand like, okay, well, I knew I had to raise uh, close to about a half a million dollars. I had a hard time trying to find investors. So I had a different strategy. I actually went after um, small investors who were willing to do as little as $500 to $1,000. And so I ended up bringing on about uh, 12 investors um, who all put in anywhere from, uh, on average, about a thousand to five thousand dollars. Then I was able to bring on three large investors who put in the bulk of about a hundred and fifty thousand. Um, but I just I couldn't get over the hurdle of um, getting you know to raise you know uh, the amount that I needed. So I ended up working with the landlord once we found a spot, and the landlord did what's called tenant improvement dollars, which I know you're aware of, and. And so the landlord was able to put in like $330,000 for the construction, which allowed me to, uh, instead of getting a loan at a bank, it increased my lease rate. So it's a gamble. Uh, at the time, if you think about the cost of leasing a restaurant, was, say $6 to $12 a square foot. In 2009, I'm starting at $23 a square foot. Wow. And that, that's a lot. Yeah, most it was it's almost designed. It's it's kind of messed up thinking back on it now. Really, not what I know. It really is designed so that you start so high that you've already done the work for the landlord to build out their space, which they have to do anyway. So you end up paying the cost to build out their space. You go out of business. They move somebody else in um, at you know similar or uh, close to them uh, to what you were paying. And it becomes a revolving door. Now, granted, they want you to succeed, of course, but eh, it's not always the case. If you do or don't, it's whatever. And uh, we can talk about it later. But that, for me, is what led me to wanting to become our own landlord and buy uh, buy our own building uh, after a couple of years, so we didn't have to have a landlord. Wow. I mean, you know, that's it's fascinating. You know, that mix of you know having that that rent, and I imagine your margins are really low the first few years because of how high that. $23 per square foot. I mean, that's like, you know, for people who don't know, that's that's the equivalent of like a professional office building, right? Like that's uh-huh. super expensive to pay for a restaurant. 
and restaurant margins aren't that high. Um, I would love for you to talk about how when you first started BU, you know, what I remember was it wasn't just, you know, a local Starbucks. Um, first of all, the food's really good. So if you are in Durham and you need some good food, go to BU. Um, but also there you used to have live music. You used to have you know, events there. Um, so just, just talk about, you know, what the business model was and the mix was back then. Yeah. So, so you're right, man. Uh, spot on calls about the margins and how challenging it was to get started. So we knew we had to hit the ground running and between the, the high lease rate, we also got uh, a community, uh, a loan through a community development corporation. So FYI, CDCs are great organizations to reach out to in your local areas that are about um, supporting uh, minority and women-owned businesses. So here we are, we're starting in like 85, 90% debt finance. So we have to hit the ground running. So part of it was trying to get creative to build up enough press and PR so that when we opened up, people were ready to go. So you know, it's funny, before the days of like Instagram and TikTok, which I guess is kind of uh, a crowded marketplace, uh, I was able to work with the uh, Herald Sun and get them to do a set of stories on us opening before we open. And so the goal was to get people to uh, be a part of our story to open. And that was part of my strategy to bring in multiple investors. And so typically uh, what's traditional is you want to bring in like one angel investor because it's only one person you have to deal with or maybe two. Never in a million years do you want to bring in, you know, like 10 to 12 different investors because those are different wants, desires, personalities, people you have to, 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 to deal with. But I was fortunate. I found some really great people that were community oriented. And so they too became a voice of us opening. So when we opened, we were able to hit the ground running. We, um, we focused on a grab and go model with coffee, uh, sandwiches, great food. So we were doing breakfast, lunch, dinner. But then after about, uh, I said maybe eight to nine months, we wanted to incorporate live poetry and uh, live, mu live music. So we did spoken word, live music. Um, I love spoken word, man. Some of the, the best experiences. However, the, the margins of people coming in that for the spoken word just wasn't quite supporting the business. Uh, so we had to transition to just doing the live music piece. And what started as kind of a hobby of just, you know, having artists kind of come in over the years we started recognizing just this amazing talent. And I just, yeah, I, I got, I was hooked on just seeing these amazing artists, a lot of whom were coming from the Central and who are, who were recent graduates. And we became known as this cool, intimate spot where it was clean. It was ran professionally. The food was good, great cocktails, um, just beautiful people, beautiful vibe in this small, intimate setting that artists were beginning to want to, to continue going. And so we we started as this coffee concept that was focused around coffee and great food. And then we ended up morphing kind of from away from coffee into live music. And that was one big lesson that I learned early on was really knowing your business, knowing what you do. Uh, even though we knew we would sell tickets, it was never my intention in the beginning that we become a live music. Uh, and so after about, you know, by year number four and five, here we are, we had shifted from a coffee shop to more of a live music venue to a restaurant that now we were kind of just doing everything. And our identity was uh, was somewhat lost, whereby now Durham is blowing up. 
you know, the $23 a square foot that I started off at, like that's now the, the going rate for everybody. And now you have specialty coffee shops coming in that are competing with us on the specialty coffee shop side and doing it better because that's their focus. You have people coming, you have other places coming in with live music that are doing great on just that. You have craft bars coming in doing just the craft bars. And of course, you get all the uh, specialty restaurants coming in just doing great food. So we found ourselves um, facing a challenge of identity and, and what we were good at, kind of that jack of all trade, a master of none, as competition began to enter Durham. So what was your make or break moment? When did you know that you could keep going? You didn't need to mothball this and, and go back to finance um, and make this, you know, go as a viable and thriving business. <laughs> I feel like I've had a couple of those moments throughout my, my careers over the 12 years of life, man. Um, yeah, I think really knowing that this was going to be the business and I didn't have to turn away from finance. You know, when I was uh, working at the coffee shop in Panera, right, working on my business plan, left the word of finance, I remember... I think it was right before I started Panera. Yeah, it was right before I started Panera Bread. I ended up going back and work for finance. I was like, I just can't do this. And um, it only took uh, two days. And I just, you know, I told them, I was like, you know, I apologize. But um, yeah, I realized this just isn't for me. I, I, I came out here with a certain path and it's just isn't right. And for me, that's that was my make or break. When I knew trying again, it just, it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't what I wanted. And so when I went into, when I, when I started down this path, you know, make a break. I don't know. I just, I've never had a, I just don't have a quit to. And I think COVID really exemplified that it, part of it is a blessing. Part of it makes me crazy and to deal with. Uh, so I think that's just the nature of any entrepreneur is you, you figure that shit out. Like period, period, end of it. Like I did just, you get it done. And that's what I look for. And so I think that's why our mission is to uplift and inspire communities through excellence, because we demand excellence in all that we do. And we learn how to be excellent every step of the way. And so that's a natural part of evolution, a natural part of growth. So, yeah, I guess from day one, uh, yeah, I knew I wasn't going back. You know, that's interesting. I, you know, most of the entrepreneurs I talk to say the same thing. It's like by the wow. time or I should say the entrepreneurs that I speak to who have business plans and have it together say the same thing. The folks who are doing it on a whim, you know, they're like, I started this and I dropped that. I started this and I dropped that. Um, oh, or yeah. I needed one more investor to come in. Um, but the folks who do the planning and think about it before they get started um, tend not to drop it. And that's something that, you know, I try to communicate to my students. That's something I try to communicate when I counsel people um, that, when you do all the work in advance, you are less likely to quit because you've done the planning. Like you said, Man, you knew what yeah. all your pitfalls were, falls were before you started. Yeah, or yeah, I, I knew I knew at least sixty percent of them right, which is like fun, right? Because you're mm -hmm. still going to have so many more. And it's funny you say that because that was that's the difference between people giving you the time or day. Because you know I, I've always been blessed to find mentors when I need it. Uh, when I needed them because they were just, they, they saw the work that I put in. So, you know, they say when the student is ready, the teacher will come. And so throughout my entire experience from, you know, hell, 2018, 19, when I wanted to dip my toe into airport concessions, which is a beast 
I mean, that's just, that's a whole nother arena. Um, and looking at where I was then and now to finally get the opportunity with RDU Airport, like being able to sit down with uh, one of my mentors to even discuss that, there is no way he would have given me the time of the day because his time is far too valuable uh, because, you know, people are just busy. You know, people at a certain level, you know, everybody has, you know, whether it's families or extracurricular activities or just work, but everybody has their own personal lives. And so to make time for the things that you care about and to give back, you know, I got to make sure that I'm going to invest my time wisely. Again, going back to my finance days, return on investment. Like I'm going to invest my time into someone. I need to get a return on that time. Wow. Who wants to waste their time? It's just life is too short to waste it. So when someone comes at me with a business plan and it's a half-assed plan, they haven't, they're not really serious about it. Yeah, it's really hard to waste my time on that. Like I give, because I always want to help people. So I give a couple of pointers and I say, hey, come back and let me know. And, and people did that with me. And guess what? I came back with what they told me and they gave me more information. And I came back with more. And when people see that you come back with more information, oh my God, they will spoon feed you up into where you advance them. You know, the whole goal is, is you know, I love finding entrepreneurs who are, who are going to, I'm just a bridge builder who can take what I've learned and continue with past us. You know, that's the beauty of, especially I think us as black people, man, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, when we think about, you know, the nature of black wall street and where we are today. So, but yeah, people have to be willing to do the work. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, just not half-ass it. Yeah. Now I would love to talk about expansion, right? So you mentioned going from tenant to landlord, um, and then you obviously have branched out to Duke University and the airport. So let's let's start with going from tenant to landlord and what that process was like and the reason for it, you know, the reason for, for having some ownership. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> you know, I, I was, this is the beauty of Duke economics degree and working on finance. And, and I think being able to do the due diligence to know, I guess, the difference between wealth and riches. And so when people think about just wanting to scale, grow and make money, making money isn't the same as building wealth. And wealth is a marathon. You know, trying to make money is a short term game. And that's still lost on so many folks. And so when I recognize that we hit the ground running, but you said the best, we were paying such a high exorbitant rent rate, a lease rate. Man, we weren't making any money. And I'm like, well, why, why are we not expanding? I'm seeing other folks open up two, three locations. I'm like, man, we're still just one location. And, and so I realized because we were mostly debt finance, we didn't raise capital in a different capacity, which goes back to why it's really important to look at debt versus investors. Because you know, with investors, you don't have to pay that money back immediately. Yes, they want their money back over time, but you don't have to start paying them anything the first year or the second year, even the third year. Um, you can take your time and, and the money you would use to pay them back um, or the money you would use to pay your interest on a loan, you can put that money towards opening up another location. So we didn't get that opportunity. And so with our landlord, they were, um, they, you know, they, they had done a couple of shady things that I thought were, uh, you know, it was, it was business, but it wasn't a way that I thought um, it wasn't how I would do business. We, we fell on rough times. And we needed help with our rent for uh, for 30 days. And so they end up giving us um, three months of a grace period. 
But instead of paying back those three months with a certain interest of, you know, 10, even 15%, no, they want us to pay double rent for the next, uh, I think it was six months to eight months. I can't remember. For however long it was that we ended up paying 100% rate of return. And it was one of those we were in such a bad situation. Hence, first, another most, and read your documents. That was my big, that was the learning experience I would never forget. I signed something before I fully read it because I was desperate to get the uh, three months of, of free rent, of half rent. That's right. We paid rent for half the amount and then we paid double for X amount of months after that until they got 100% return. It was like six or eight months. And um, that was a, a life lesson. So anyway, seeing what happened there. I realized that it wasn't in my best interest to stay in that location. Now that they kept trying to push up our rent, we had a five-year lease. We were supposed to go back down to the market rate after five years. Uh, instead of going back to the, instead of going back down to the market rate, which was roughly about maybe anywhere between sixteen to twenty, they wanted to keep it at twenty twenty. I think I was at twenty-four at the time. They wanted to just keep it at twenty-four and keep it. And it was one of those where, well, what could I do? I'd invest all this money in the building. <laughs> How could I, I, I've been, you know, break even because again, all my money is going back to paying interest and loans. So I couldn't get a, just another loan to go open up a whole nother restaurant and do a fit, you know, so I felt stuck. And I ended up uh, looking at our neighbor, I talked to my neighbor across the street who had just um, opened up his uh, architecture studio, center, uh, center architecture studios. And so I spoke with Scott Harmon, the CEO of, of, uh, his, of that studio, and he had done a SBA 504 loan deal, whereby he, along with other restaurants, all bought the building in addition to some tenants upstairs. And so it got me thinking, it's like, wait, how does that work? So I ended up looking into um, finding a property. Thank God it worked out that the property two doors down from me was available, or at least they were looking to sell the whole building. I couldn't afford to do the whole building. And plus the building was so huge that the SBA, it was only two, it was two stories, but the SBA is like to get a 504 loan, you have to occupy over 50% of the space. And, you know, we wouldn't be able to occupy that. We were, you know, like 3000 square feet. And I think total three, six, nine, it was like 12,000 square feet total. So that would have just been too much of a debt obligation for us. So we, the landlord ended up condoing its own building and we end up taking a portion of it. There was a restaurant already next to us, Toast. So they ended up buying their own. And then somebody came in later on and bought the top. And it was actually great for the landlord who sold the building or great for the, the, the owners of that building because they couldn't sell the building in whole. But by condoing it out, they ended up selling it for more in bits and chunks, which is genius. And we were all happy, too. And so, um, yeah, I ended up uh, in 2015, we ended up purchasing the property. And then getting in, uh, my wife and I, so we set up a separate LLC. So now me and my wife, we own this. And so this was always for me is my retirement plan. So now as I'm paying a mortgage, just like buying a house, right? You buy a house, your house is an asset. Well, now we bought a building. Well, now I'm paying the mortgage to ourselves. And what's beautiful about the SBA 504 loan is banks love it because the SBA takes on um, 40% or I think we have 40% of the risk, I think 40 or 60% of the risk. And take a second position behind the bank. So if we go under, bank gets their money first, and whatever happens after that, the SBA gets theirs. So there's less risk on the bank, which is why they don't mind doing it. 
And because we had already been in business for over five years, we were a uh, we were a safe bet for the bank to to do this loan. So we were able to get an SBA loan. It goes out to like over the bank portion is like 10 years. The SBA is like over 20 years and fixed rate. And so it actually, we ended up paying uh, the same amount as we were paying for our lease by owning the building. And so it was kind of an easy transition. It was a $1.3 million development project. Man, that was a, that was hell because we went through some rough with working with a, a bad developer. Uh, our bad contractor who uh, overpromised and underdelivered, trying to work with somebody who said they could do it, and yeah, that was uh, we ended up opening at the last minute, <laughs> um, whereby we were, yeah, we we just we just got it open at the last minute, and then we became landlords. That's awesome. So you know, you mentioned it's you it's a condo, it's a commercial condo, I guess is what I would call it, right? So it's a condo for businesses. Um, so you only own your space. You don't, you didn't have to buy the entire like block of buildings. Y'all could each just buy your individual businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the seller was able to do that. And uh, what's really cool is <laughs> I was asking, I was like, well, typically with the SBA, you have to put 10% down. Well, again, we were, uh, you know, we were in a good position, but again, we didn't have 10% to put down on all of this of like $100,000. So it's like, well, asking the right questions. So another thing with entrepreneurs in business, learn how to ask questions. So often you find entrepreneurs who just like to talk, talk, talk. And I always, I'm surprised by those who talk so much that they don't ask any questions. And you'll find that people who are successful, who know their stuff, they don't really talk much. They'll share what they know, but you know, it's like you don't have to share what you already know unless you're asked. And so learn how to ask really good questions to get what you need. So in this one, I was like, I thank God I asked the right question. It's like, is there a way to do this without having any money? Right. And that's when I learned about a seller's note. And I was like, what's a seller's note? And it's like, oh, and that's when I learned, okay, the seller of the building will put up the 10% for you with the SBA and in the form of a loan. So now we were able to buy our, 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 our portion of a building, become our own landlord with zero money down. Wow. And yeah, you, so the 10% down, we ended up financing that 10% with the seller of the building and a separate promissory note. And we had our 90% that was through the banking with the SBA. And so we were able to undertake a $1.4 million, $1.4 million development deal with zero money down. Wow. So seller's note is uh, FYI something. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't even know that was a thing. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know that was allowed with SBA. I knew it was a thing. I just didn't know if it was allowed um, with SBA. So that's very, very important to know. Because as you say, you don't know unless you ask, right? Closed mouths don't get fed. So, right. Right. And, and the SBA is smart. They, just def- they definitely do their homework. So it's one of those like, uh, yeah, you can do a seller's note, but uh, it will take a third position. <laughs> but then the seller has to be okay with that. Right. So, and you have to get permission from the SBA to pay off the seller. So it is, it's complicated, but so, you know, it's nothing that you can't overcome. And so it's not as hard as, yeah, it's not as difficult as one may think. It's just, if you have the right people involved and it goes back to business relationships right like that's the other secret in business is so often it's not about the money it's about the relationships um 
because the, the great relationships will take you so much further. Um, and so, yeah, luckily the seller of the buildings, man, they were good people. They cared about Durham. They loved what we were about. So they worked with us on, on doing that. Now, the, now after the, uh, the ownership of the building, the next expansion I remember is uh, the expansion to Duke University to being their on-campus cafe. Um, was there an expansion before that or is that the next one? That was the next one. Yeah. All right, let, so, let's, talk, let's talk about the Duke Cafe. Yeah. So, um, so BU Blue Coffee came in 2018 and uh, BU Blue Coffee was our uh, second location in 2008. So we just purchased the building in 2015. We made the, or 2014, we transitioned over in 2015. And then in 2018, we got an opportunity to open up a, uh, a coffee shop next to the university store on West Campus. And it was about 400, maybe 460 square feet. So it was small. And uh, when we opened, yeah, we hit the ground running. And it was one of those where, oh man, this is this is the model that Starbucks and Caribou and Dunkin that they all do is small footprint, volume, high traffic, you know, and that's where I realized I had been looking at business kind of in a completely different way from full service to quick service. So here we are doing kind of breakfast, lunch, and dinner with live music and all everything at BU Cafe downtown. But here at BU Blue Coffee, it's a coffee shop. <laughs> it's it's very simple. It's this is what we do. It was streamlined and it was and it was easier to just run and manage. I mean, just oh. headache, everything. So learning from that, um, we end up applying that to the rest of our organization to try to streamline and simplify what we do so that we could grow and, and, and continue to, to scale. But yeah, 2018, um, it was a struggle though in 2000, what, summer 2019 of the first year, because as we're hitting it, we forgot that, um, yeah, it slows down in the summer. <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah, it's going to be the same during those couple of months. And when we opened up BU Blue Coffee, we knew then to, we made the decision to discontinue live music at our downtown cafe. And again, to streamline our operations. And that was, oh boy, that was uh, a lesson learned of, you know, it was, it was the right decision. We would have done it a little bit differently of just completely, completely cutting it off because it was a lot of backlash. So I had to, I experienced a lot of just negative, uh, uh, it felt like it definitely felt like hate um, at the time, but it was a lot of that negative feedback of social media and, you know, and it was challenging because, you know, as a community establishment where you feel like, you know, you've always been a focal point of the community, you've always felt like you were giving back to the community, but then you had the community back at you, it's like sell out or how can you get rid of live music or, you know, now you go to do for the white folks and you feel about the black folks. And it just, it was interesting to look at just this, dichotomy of uh, how we're perceived community versus trying to continue expansion of the community, uh, understanding the business elements. So uh, going through that in 2019 was rough, followed by the summer months of us closing. So we lost the revenue from live music. We then don't have the revenue coming in in the summer. So we struggled in 2019. 2019 was a rough year. And um, that was one to, you know, I do regret when we discontinued live music, we also changed from full service to counter service at our downtown location. Not that, you know, BU Blue Coffee could help subsidize 
our uh, uh, sustainability. But making both switches at the same time, discontinuing live music and doing counter service to try to streamline our operation, it was too big of a of a hit to our customer base that um, it it um, it alienated a lot of our customers, and we it took us a long time to try to build back from that. And so that was definitely one lesson learned: is you know when you make these decisions. Sometimes you don't always need to do it in one big hammer, especially if they're big changes. Um, sometimes start one one big change so that because uh, confused customers don't buy. So you don't want to confuse your customers. And, you know, that's something I've learned later on. Now, every little thing we do is making sure we don't confuse our customers, whether that's <clears throat> how we present our branding or how we introduce a new menu item, the name of that menu item. Like making sure you don't confuse customers is so important because there's so much competition. So that was a lesson learned when we expanded the Yubu call. How did y'all weather the, the pandemic? Yeah, so uh, going into 2020, so 2000, fall of 2019, school opened back up at Duke. Thank God, revenue comes back in. Um, it was a rough year for everybody. So things are picking up in downtown, catering is picking up. And we're going into 2020, ready to expand, looking at investors to raise some capital, made the decision like, you know what, let's raise a little bit more capital and get going. And investors uh, were were coming on board, and then the pandemic hits. Uh, as I'm, you know, really into some some deals, and everything just fell apart. And so investors, they didn't they didn't flee, but they definitely were on the sidelines of just trying to see what would happen. Um, and so for us, because we weren't known for you know uh, a particular specialty in food, whether a pizza spot or a sandwich spot. We didn't get the same. We weren't as fortunate as other restaurants who could pick up um, with loyal customers because we were the place people came to to socialize. So we couldn't rely on food or even coffee with low with low just the low dollar amount and people you know being at home. So you know it's funny. I went back to the basics. You know why did we get into this in the first place? Right? Any entrepreneurs, it's ultimately to serve. And so I just went back to the core of what we're about: to serve. And when I thought about that, well, so, well, how can we serve people? And so um, we're back to my Duke days and did some research. And it's always about, well, let's research and let's see. And I looked at, well, what are they doing? What are they doing overseas? So I started studying um, China and um, Europe because they were already, you know, far ahead dealing with the pandemic than we were. And that's when I learned about how a lot of uh, companies in China had it their business model from B to C to B to B. So going from business to consumer, now going to business to business. So I did the same thing here. We start stopped looking at retail customers and then we started looking at business clientele. So starting with catering. Well, a lot of businesses weren't really doing the catering because people were kind of starting to stay home. Well, then we started looking at nonprofits. Well, nonprofits definitely need to start feeding people during this time because everything was just a shit storm. So, we found ourselves uh, supporting nonprofits and other community-based organizations who needed meals, particularly uh, particularly the uh, uh, um, Durham Public School System and their foundation. And so we were able to um, connect with the Durham Public School uh, uh, Durham Public School Foundation, provide them with meals to provide with kids, and we took that idea and started working with Duke Health System to provide meals with them um, to other. Um, uh, to frontline healthcare workers. We started partnering with other restaurants. So when we were receiving money, 
we would then pay that money to other restaurants so they too could also deliver meals. So we were trying to help subsidize our neighbors who were who were struggling as well. And we ended up building on that and found ourselves really good at it and continued these partnerships. And before we realized it, we the BU Food Project, where here we are attacking food insecurity um, because we recognize that, yeah, this is far beyond COVID. Food insecurity is such a huge problem that so often we look at the, the glamour of restaurants, of the front of the house and the beautiful dish and the food, yet there are so many employees within restaurants who are food insecure and people within our communities who are food insecure who don't have access to food, can't afford food. And it's like, yeah, it's a huge problem that we just overlook. And so, yeah, COVID allowed us to weather that storm by serving. And since then, it's become kind of a bedrock of, of who we are and what we enjoy doing. That's awesome. You know, I, I really love the innovation. You know, COVID was, is hor- it still is horrible, um, but it is forcing so many of us to be creative and to think outside the box. And I, I hope that, you know, like your nonprofit efforts, that other people's efforts will stay after the pandemic. You know, the, the, the people who were food insecure before are still food insecure now and even more right. food insecure now. Um, so it's important that we continue even as we think we're out of the pandemic. Yeah, and we're excited. We just uh, brought on a senior program director to really take uh, the BE Food Project to the next level because this is something we're, you know, we're really investing in. And so it's kind of the same way as we talked about earlier on with the entrepreneurs, that if you don't invest in yourself, whether that's investing in a business plan, investing in knowledge, uh, reading is another huge thing, it, you know, um, just read. There's so much just information on how to weather this stuff. So I think, you know, investing in, the Be Food Project initiative and people. I mean, we've we've invested in bands. Um, I mean, we've invested a lot, and so being able to take advantage of a lot of the um, the, uh, the the public dollars that have come, you know, come to businesses through the pandemic, you know, it's been fortunate. It's probably the closest we'll ever get to reparations. So it's you know using that to invest in. Oh, I'm serious. There's definitely reparations. It's, you know, everybody has a trouble. Like, oh, now y'all want to give us money. So I'm like, well. Let's use it and let's invest. This is in lieu of investors. Thank you, Uncle Sam. All right. Now let's our last topic. Let's talk about the airport. So what's going to happen at RDU? Where what's what's going to be the name of the venture at, at RDU? Let's let's talk a little bit about that airport venture. Yeah, so announced last Thursday. Um, we are going to be opening up two small retail locations, coffee shop locations. So both will be BU Cafe. Uh, one in Terminal 1, one in Terminal 2. And uh, the uh, they'll both be pre-security. So right before you go through security check, uh, we're going to be taking over two former uh, stress locations. And um, yeah, we are looking at anywhere between October to December. The goal is before the holidays. Wow. So we just did our first walkthrough on Wednesday. And, you know, the idea is, is because we've gone through the process twice now, even at Duke, uh, we have experience now of, because again, all those experience of the development of, uh, you know, first, first in 2009, then in 2015, and then with Duke, we've had this experience of having to open very quickly. So yeah, we're kind of walking into a situation where it's like, yeah, is it really this easy? Uh, okay, we're waiting for the shoe to drop. So yeah, our goal is by the end of the year, we're going to be able to come in there, working with their architects, their design teams. We're getting our equipment list ready and, you know, getting ready to, to, to move forward. 
All right. Now for my listeners who are not in the Durham area, what can they do to support you and support your business? Oh man, that's, thank you for those who, who choose to please. You can check us out on BUCafe.com, B-E-Y-U-C-A-F-F-E.com. Again, giving homage to the birthplace of the espresso of, of Italy in that piece. And you can, again, buy um, coffee online. Um, I always start with coffee. That's where we started. Our heart and soul blend is truly our signature blend. It's the coffee we started since day number one in 2009. Um, it was named Heart and Soul because one of our uh, tasters there was, it was created by people in the community. And one member said, hey, we got to call this Heart and Soul because it touched her heart and very soul. Uh, and then our Say It Loud um, uh, Say it loud, Dark and Proud blend is our dark roast and espresso roast. Great for coffee lovers who love a strong roast or espresso. That's my favorite. My wife's my favorite. So yeah, please go online and, and buy some coffee or visit us if you're in town in Durham. I will say the dark roast is what goes in my French press. Like I, I ordered the BU dark roast um, and it, it, it does the job. Um, I need a strong espresso roast. So BU Cafe, dark roast, Go or or the heart and soul. The heart and soul is good too, but that's more of my middle of the day coffee. My first thing in the morning coffee you. is that dark roast. So definitely, Man, I'm with you. It does, and it's smooth. It gets your day started. Like that's one thing I, I love about it. It is delicious coffee, and it's not burnt. It's yeah, and you can check us out on Facebook too. Uh, this old videos during COVID to show you how to uh, brew the perfect French press or the perfect cup of coffee. So yeah, yeah, it's nice and smooth in the French press. I will say, um, I highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much, Dorian. Um, this hour always goes so quickly, um, especially when it's with friends. And so I'm excited to learn all those things I didn't know about BU Cafe. And, you know, so happy that you have been so successful. Um, I eat at BU every time I go to Durham and I have the shrimp and grits every single time, uh, which <laughs> is my shrimp and grits, yeah. <laughs> oh, the shrimp and grits are good. So go to BU, have the shrimp and grits and get some coffee. All right. Well, thank you again so much, Dorian. Thank you all for tuning in to Get In Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are streamed on the Voice America Network or on the YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or to reach out to me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dorian. Um, I think you gave entrepreneurs some great insight with this episode. I hope so. Thank you again, Carlos, for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 